From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. When medical resources become scarce, as may happen during pandemics, what are the ethical considerations for deciding who gets care? For an academic look at this dilemma, I'm speaking by telephone with Dr. Thomas Curran. He's part of the Bioethics and Humanities faculty at Upstate, and he teaches about this very subject. Thank you for making time to talk with me, Dr. Curran. My pleasure, Amber. Now, under normal conditions, we strive to treat people equally, um, but that sometimes changes during emergency conditions, right? That, that's, that's precisely it. Our entire system uh, is based on, you know, maximizing the care of individual patients uh, the best way uh, that we can. And in a, in a pandemic situation, all of a sudden, you know, you have to shift from pa- patient-centered practice to patient care that's really guided by public health considerations. Uh, and this, you know, can create great tension uh, in the clinicians who are un- they're, they're just unaccustomed um, to working under viral pandemic conditions, and they're unused to, you know, putting society out, out in front. It's a, it's a whole different way of thinking. And, you know, we're trying to, in a, in a pandemic situation, you're trying to ensure the health of the population. Uh, And to do that, it can require limitations on uh, individual rights and preferences. That's, it's just, it's a, it's a different situation. So that's different for patients too, because we're we're used to getting kind of what we want when we want it. And that's not going to happen in a pandemic, right? Uh, It is absolutely not going to happen. As I said, you you know, there's, look, um, individual liberty is one of the uh, most, uh, Prominent traits of uh, Americans. We, we, we absolutely honor our individual liberty. However, in a viral pandemic, there are, there's this limitations of individual rights. That's just, it, it's baked into the pie. So let's talk, because in this pandemic, uh, the coronavirus causes uh, a respiratory illness. So ventilators are in short supply. And why is it that they're needed so much right now. We don't really have enough of them. Yeah, a, a, a very good point. So as you, everyone's heard about trying to flatten the curve, right? So and when people talk about flattening the curve of COVID-19 transmission, what they're talking about is making the transmission slow down enough that we don't exceed the capacity of hospitals to take care of people. So the ventilator comes into play when we don't bend the curve enough and we exceed the hospital's capacity to take care of patients with COVID-19. And based on the numbers, I just read this yesterday, based on the numbers in New York from yesterday, they're estimating that um, we're gonna, there'll be between 1.4 and 31 patients per ventilator to be needed, depending on how many people get COVID-19. So you can see if, if 1.4 people needs one ventilator or 31 people need one ventilator, it's still not enough ventilators. And so the, the you know, whether or not you get on a ventilator is typically, you know, a matter of life and death. Well, the Los Angeles Times began a story recently with a question I'd like to put to you. Here it is. Three patients, a 16-year-old boy with diabetes, a 25-year-old mother, and a 75-year-old grandfather are crammed into a hospital triage tent and struggling to breathe. Only one ventilator is left. Who gets it? 
So you, as a bioethicist, how do you answer that question? What are some of the things you consider in answering that question? So um, as you may imagine, Amber, there are, there are New York State guidelines for this. Oh. Okay. And they, they, they were last revised in 2015. So they, they, you know, they, definitely took, they were definitely crafted after SARS and MERS and H1N1 and all, you know, all those things. So they took, they took, they took into consideration uh, you know, virally transmitted respiratory diseases. And so they've come up with um, you know, New York State's guiding principle is they're targeting saving the most lives as possible uh, from the, uh, and, and, and in particular, the fact that they will survive short term with this acute medical episode. So that's, that's a really important thing to keep in mind because there, you, you can imagine um, uh, people are going to be presenting, if we, if we exceed surge capacity, people will be, will be presenting with respiratory failure faster than we can put them on breathing machines, which means that some people will not get on breathing machines, which means that some people will die. So New York State has has um, they their their main concern is maximizing short-term survival and being objective, as you may imagine, because um, anytime you start uh, limiting a therapy, you better make sure that you've taken into account most of your uh, um, unconscious biases, because everyone, you know, I might say, gee, you know. Uh, a 60-year-old physician should definitely be in the list because they can take care of people, but that, that would be self-serving on my part. So oh. the, way New York State, the way New York State does it is they, um, they, they do it in three steps. The first thing, when you, when you arrive at the hospital and you're in respiratory distress and you need a, a ventilator, the first thing they do is they decide whether or not you meet exclusion criteria, which means if you're in irreversible shock, you're not going to get a ventilator because you're likely going to die anyway. So that's the first level of assessment. The second level of assessment, and this is really um, where New York State is trying to figure out your overall mortality risk, you're going to hear a lot about something called sequential organ failure assessment, or SOFA, sequential organ failure assessment. And a patient that, that turns up in the hospital, they're going to check the oxygen level, they're going to check you, you know, your, your platelet count, they're going to check your uh, bilirubin, they're going to check your blood pressure. They're going to check all these things, and they're going to give you a score. And low scores get the ventilators, and high scores don't. Uh, so those then, scores are, are telling you uh, how healthy your organs are? It, it's exactly correct. You, you, with a, a, doing a, a several, like, so for example, bilirubin uh, could assess your liver function, and creatinine can uh, assess your kidneys function, and the, your oxygen level can is reflective of your lungs function. And so the worse you're, the more, um, the sicker you are, the higher score you get, and the less likely you are to get a ventilator. Once again, this is fundamentally different from how we operate in a non-pandemic situation because we have enough ventilators in a non-pandemic situation. So even if you presented with all those things, you know, uh, two months ago, you would definitely get a ventilator because we didn't have any of these sort of over, you know, um, didn't have these limitations based on availability of ventilators. And then, and then lastly, Amber, then you get reassessed um, every couple of days to see if you're looking for signs of improvement. And if you don't improve, then they'll put someone else on the ventilator who has a better chance of short-term survival. So this is a, you can see where this will generate uh, 
has the potential to, ge to generate an enormous amount of moral distress, uh, both with patients and, and the medical team. This is really uncharted waters. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with bioethicist Dr. Thomas Curran. And I just learned that New York State has guidelines uh, from 2015 that were put in place that will help healthcare workers decide who gets the scarce medical resources during a pandemic. So I didn't hear you mention age. Is age something that goes, I mean, certainly age, uh, you know, influences the health of your organs, but as a specific, does a 75-year-old stand less of a chance of getting a ventilator than a 65-year-old, all of other things being equal? Well, well, although I have so far avoided answering your L.A. Times question, I will delve in at this juncture based on New York State. So in New York State, if you're a 75-year-old male or you're a 16-year-old male and you have the same SOFA score, in New York State, they prioritize being less than 17 years of age to get the ventilator over the older person. That's the, it's the one thing, it's the one Thing in the New York State regulations right now that there's a preference based on age. I can and I remember talking with my uh, my mom about this. <laughs> she thought she did not like she did not like how that one broke down at all, uh, as you may imagine. But the New York as of 2015, that's how New York State has directed uh, clinicians to uh, operate. A, B, there is talk uh, that there will be another set of recommendations forthcoming shortly based on our current uh, situation. So with respect to age, what about with respect to other medical problems, all other things being equal, if one person has a cancer diagnosis and the other one doesn't, who gets the machine? That's a great question. And the way the, way the current regulations are written, uh, if you have, so if you have a person with respiratory failure straight COVID-19, and you have another patient with straight with um, COVID-19 respiratory failure, but in addition to that, they have cancer. If the two of them have the same score, the same SOFA score, or assigned to the same group via the SOFA assessment tool, then it's a it's a flip of a coin who gets the vent. They want they want New York State has recognized uh, recommended randomizing people to whether or not they get a vent because they think, I mean, you can make a case for this. It is um, fair insofar as it's random chance. Now, one could easily make the case that why would you, you know, why would, why would you not consider a comorbid um, diagnosis such as cancer? The problem is it just introduces too much subject, subjectivity into decisions that, that need to be made literally, you know, minute to minute. What is in place to make sure that some wealthy person can't just jump to the front of the line? So the, they're... Um, it's an interesting question. So there's a lot of talk right now about um, separating the clinicians who are taking care of the patients hands-on and the triage folks who determine whether or not you qualify for a ventilator. There's a lot of talk about separating those two groups because it's felt that the clinician, the hands-on clinician has an, un an unconscious bias to help the patient they're taking care of no matter what they can do, and that kind of messes up the, 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 the New York State guidelines, uh, you know, SOFA scores. And so um, I, the, the, the thought is that um, if you, as long as you keep it totally objective, then it'll be very hard for 
as you said, for someone to jump the line. And it's also thought to be if you have a different set of folks evaluating patients for potential uh, ventilator use, um, there's good to be some separation between them and the clinicians, and that also would help with, you know, uh, stopping people from jumping the line, as you said. So what if you're a person um, who's not going to get the ventilator? Are you automatically a do-not-resuscitate patient? So this is going to be... This is going to be a big, big topic, and, and I'll just unpack it for you. So if, if you're in respiratory failure and you, do not get a vent, and you do not get put on a ventilator, you are almost always going to be dead in a very short period of time. I mean, that's why we use ventilators, right? They prevent death from respiratory failure. Now, if you don't get the ventilator and you have COVID-19, your heart will stop at some point after you didn't get the ventilator. And then the question is, do you try and restart that heart at that point or not? And one of the things that you have to keep in mind under pandemic situations is, you know, when you code someone, you push on their chest and you put lines in them, the the potential for transmission of COVID-19 exists by the very act of coding someone. And so that's where there's this, this, where do we go with regards to our duty to safeguard the healthcare workforce? Because that, that would put them, example, that would put a doctor and nurse and technicians at risk if they're trying everyone to. Everyone at risk. A. B. You know, one of the things we're trying to do here is maintain critical mass of healthcare providers. If, if all the healthcare providers get COVID 19, you know, that's the apocalypse. And so, once again, this, this, whether or not you get made DNR or not, this is one of those classic examples of non-pandemic time, individual liberty drives the bus. And in pandemic, viral pandemic time, you have to take a look at the greater good. And to be, you know, so if you want to be pragmatic about it, what good would it do to code someone who is not going to make it anyway and in particular with the risk of transmitting COVID-19 to the healthcare team. You know, it's hard to make a case to code someone in those situations. But that being said, it's going to generate a ton of discussion because it's so different from what we would usually do. Yeah, I imagine there's a lot of discussions going on regarding this. So can we go back to the Los Angeles Times story, which patient gets the ventilator, the 16-year-old boy with diabetes, the 25-year-old mother, or the 75-year-old grandfather, assuming they all have the same SOFA score? Sofa. Yeah. yeah. If they all have the same SOFA score and there's one ventilator, the 16-year-old would get it. In New, in York, New, York, in New York State. As it okay. stands right now as, of 20, as per the 2015 guidelines. Yes. Even over the 25-year-old mother. So they don't look at um, who has the most dependents or who has the most life left to the lifespan. They don't consider that, really. Well, the lifespan is, is the one thing that is considered. That's why there's a bias for same score bent going to the younger person. Un- under 17. Under 17. Okay. And once again, this could very well change when the, if, if new guidelines um, come out. I think the thing that's, that, that most people don't, it's hard for them to get their head around, is that if if our if we exceed the surge capacity of our intensive care beds, um, these decisions are going to be being made fast, and they're going to be permanent, and they're going to be 
continuous. You know, it's going to be, it's going to be frenetic. And so um, uh, you have to have a, it's, it's, it's important to have a system where you can, in an agreed upon way, decide who gets the limited resource in a way that's fair to everybody. Because it's made patient at the patient's bedside, it, there's not going to be some meeting called with a lot of people sitting down to talk about it. It has to be made immediately. Right. And, and, and I, when I envision this, there's going to be, I envision a place that's not in the, not in the emergency room or the ICU, but some office, someplace in upstate. And there's going to be people, three or four people in that room that are just looking at patient profiles and who's getting better and who's getting worse and who gets the vents and who comes off the vents. There's going to be an, like an independent, I, I, at least I envision this, an independent group of people making those determinations separate from the clinical environment. But they're going to have to be made very fast, and they're going to be irreversible. Wow. Well, this has been very enlightening. Thank you to Dr. Thomas Curran. He's part of the Bioethics and Humanities faculty at Upstate Medical University. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air.